0: Hey listeners, welcome back to Shades of Crime. The province of Prince Edward Island on Canada's east coast is significantly smaller than any other Canadian province, and it only takes around 4 hours to drive from one end to the other. PEI is known for its small town feel and strong sense of community, resulting in the lowest crime rates in all of Canada. But crime happens everywhere, and PEI is no exception. The province of PEI only has three active missing persons cases, and with the strong sense of community on the island, each of these cases has profoundly impacted those who live on the island. Today I will be telling you about the disappearances of Stephen O'Brien, Stacey McKinnon-Smith, and Teresa Ann Gregory. So get ready, because things are about to get shady. <laughs> Stephen O'Brien was born May 14th of 1974, on Prince Edward Island. Growing up, he always knew that he wanted to be a chef. From a very young age, he would take a bag of flour and a bowl behind a couch and attempt to secretly make pancakes for his mother as a surprise. This tradition continued until Stephen was able to start making more intricate creations, and every year he made his mother a cake for her birthday. Knowing this, it was no surprise to Stephen's parents when he informed them that he intended to go to Holland College for Culinary Arts. Holland College is located on PEI and has two campuses in the two main cities in the province, Charlottetown and Summerside. The culinary school was in Charlottetown. Stephen finished up high school and was accepted into Holland College. He moved out to live on residence at the college and start off on a career he had dreamed of since such a young age. The Culinary Arts program at Holland College also provides work placement for students in the kitchen on campus, so Stephen had a pretty full schedule, but he was still a college student, so he still went out drinking with his friends, as many college students would do. In his first year, Stephen was only 18, but this really wasn't much of a barrier to going out and drinking, not in PEI, and especially not in the 90s. On March 20th of 1992, Stephen was working his shift at the Culinary Institute kitchen, and he planned on going out with his friends when he clocked out. So he finished up his tasks for the day, and he and a group of friends went out to the bars. The last bar Stephen went to that evening was a bar on Richmond Street in the middle of downtown Charlottetown. A female friend said that she saw him walk out of a bar looking fairly intoxicated around 1.30am. At that point, she was walking towards Queen Street, which is the main artery of downtown Charlottetown. Later that evening, Stephen's roommates noticed that he hadn't come home, and it was past when he would normally arrive. His roommates were apparently pretty on top of things because they quickly contacted Stephen's parents. Stephen's parents subsequently contacted the police, and a search for Stephen began. When his room was examined, the investigators found that he had left behind his wallet and other personal effects, but he likely had his keys. Whether Stephen had returned and dropped off those items, or he had left with them before he went out is unclear. The searches for Stephen didn't yield anything, and the police had to make appeals to the public for any information on the case, but very quickly, all leads were explored and the case was cold. The only information left to go off of was what had been found in Stephen's room that night. Apparently, there was no indication that he was suicidal, and he had no known enemies. The case really had nowhere to go. There was one suggestion offered up by Stephen's parents, however. While the reasoning is unclear, Stephen's parents stated that they believe their son is still alive, and that he may have moved to Toronto and started a new life. His parents say they remain hopeful that this is what happened and that their son is still alive and well. Stephen's parents contacted the Missing Persons Society of Canada and they assigned two investigators on the case. Based on the parents' suspicion that their son could have gone to Toronto, the investigations focused their efforts in PEI and Toronto. The first step was creating age-progressed images of Stephen. Once those images were made, they were put up throughout Toronto and PEI. These age-progressed images have been periodically updated, the most recent depicting Stephen at the age of 44. The images were handmade because investigators claim that hand-drawn images tend to garner more attention than computer-generated ones. Despite this, there haven't been any credible leads to come through, and unfortunately this case remains unsolved and no further than it was when the investigation began in the 90s. When the chief investigator on the case was asked if foul play was considered a possibility, he answered, nothing is being ruled out and they are investigating every single avenue. Stephen's parents described him as caring and affectionate towards all of them. His closeness to the family makes me wonder why he would leave without a word, why he hasn't eventually reached out knowing the pain his family is in. Also, many people who know about true crime could tell you how astoundingly difficult it is to disappear without a trace. As far as I can tell, Stephen didn't have the means or know-how to just vanish. Additionally, even though Toronto is a very big city, it would be super unlikely that no one would have seen him in the city or know a bit about him so they could bring it forward to the police. The idea of foul play is always a possibility, but there isn't any evidence to point in that direction. Which by no means discards the possibility of a murder, but it definitely doesn't leave the thought of it at the forefront of the minds of the people who are looking into the case. I feel that if Stephen had gone to Toronto, he would have been reported at some point. However, people in different provinces or states or almost anywhere else are way less likely to recognize Stephen as the missing person from a small Canadian province. There have also been a couple of incidents where drunk people have fallen into the Charlottetown Harbor to never be seen again. So this could happen, but again, we just don't know, and if that is the case, it would be almost impossible to confirm that was in fact what occurred. In the end, the information on this case is so limited and continues to baffle people of PEI. The next case has a lot more information, and also a lot more of an obvious answer of what happened, but it does lack an answer on how things kept going so wrong to allow the woman to disappear. Stacy McKinnon-Smith lived most of her life in PEI. But in the 2000s, Stacy decided to move out west to the province of Alberta for work. In 2016, while living in Alberta, Stacy got sick and found herself incapable of working. Because she wasn't able to work there anymore, Stacy decided that she should move back to PEI. Stacy struggled with mental health her entire life, and when she had to leave her job, she fell into a depression that became debilitating. Following her arrival to PEI, Stacey was placed in the mental health ward at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital due to threats of suicide. Over the next year, Stacey was continually in and out of the hospital, but when Stacey was found overdosed on prescription medication, she was placed on a longer hold. During her stay at the hospital, she had left twice to end her life. The first time, she was let out for a smoke break but when she hadn't come back in five minutes, the hospital staff searched for her in the hospital, and they found a note and called her family and the police. Around midnight, Stacy was located at a park about a kilometer away from the hospital, and she was brought back to the ward. The second time, Stacy had been let out on a 30-minute smoke break, and once again, a note was found in her room. The hospital was searched when she didn't return in the 30 minutes, and then the family was called as well as the police. Stacy was located walking in and out of the water near the hospital. When Stacy was found, she was picked up by EMTs who brought her to the hospital to treat her for exposure. After this event, Stacy's family called the hospital to request that Stacy would no longer be let out on unsupervised smoke breaks. They were told that the staff would relay this to Stacy's attending physician. They were told that the request would be considered, but this request was not treated as seriously as it should have been. On January 15th of 2018, Stacy was let out for a half-hour smoke break at 8.25pm. When Stacy hadn't returned to the hospital within the allotted time, staff looked for her in the hospital, but this time there was no note. When staff called Stacy's family, they told them that it wasn't that urgent because unlike the other times, she hadn't left a suicide note. Nevertheless, searchers went out to find Stacy, but this time things were different. When searches were conducted, Stacy wasn't found anywhere. Soon the police had to appeal to the public to see if anyone knew anything. Quite a few tips came through. First, they discovered from Stacy's friend that she was active on Facebook until 8:51 p.m. The next tip came from someone who had seen someone sitting on the railing of the bridge that goes over a narrow section of the Charlottetown Harbor and connects Charlottetown with the neighboring town of Stratford. The person driving the car saw the person sitting on the bridge around 9.15 p.m. They turned around a few minutes later to check up on the person and call 911. When they had returned, the person was no longer on the bridge. This person believes that Stacy was the one on the bridge. Investigators were able to piece together CCTV footage that showed Stacy headed towards the bridge. Searches were conducted near the bridge using both sniffer dogs and drones, but no trace of Stacy was found. When the tide goes out, a body could be carried out and, and then locating it would be very difficult. But... There have been other cases of people jumping from the bridge where they were easily located. This doesn't mean that Stacy didn't jump off the bridge, it just presents a bit of a confounding factor. Obviously, the main belief is that Stacy died by suicide. Her family believes this to be true, and almost everything points to that idea. However, Stacy's case is still listed as a missing persons case because she was never located. The main questions about this case are related to why this woman, who was a known threat to herself, was let out for an unsupervised smoke break. Following her disappearance, Stacy's family inquired into why she was still let out for smoke breaks, but they were given very little. Because Stacy isn't listed as deceased, releasing her documents would be a breach of privacy. Because of her disappearance, the hospital stopped allowing unsupervised smoke breaks, but this was rolled back and now each attending physician will determine whether their patient can or cannot leave unsupervised. Stacy's family made a petition to put up security cameras on the Stratford Bridge, and in 2020, their efforts paid off. Cameras were placed with constant surveillance. While the cameras may not always succeed in stopping suicide, it, at the very least, could provide closure to a family and not leave them questioning in the way Stacy's family is. In the end, I think we may know what happened to Stacy, but it is still an unsolved missing persons case that confounds the province and deserves attention as well. There are a lot more details on Stacy's case, but I didn't want to cover them in depth because I didn't feel it was appropriate to get into the nitty-gritty details of her mental health struggles. If you want to know more about Stacy's time in the hospital, and what happened leading up to her disappearance, I recommend that you search it up online. Articles are available, and you'll get more information. The next case seems to have a relatively clear answer as to what happened, but in a much different way than Stacy's case. Teresa Ann Gregory lived in Bangor, PEI with her husband, Kenny Gregory, and their two children. In 1982, Teresa was 31 years old, and she was described as a kind and loving woman. Someone who was loved by the community and who did her best to make people happy. Teresa's sister, who was 15 at the time, said that she idolized Teresa, and that the two of them were the best of friends. To this day, she talks very fondly of her sister. On June 21st, Teresa was going about her average day, but something happened that afternoon that caused Teresa to drive away from her home. When she drove off that day, no one thought that it would be the last time they would ever see Teresa again. Only a few days later, when family hadn't heard from Teresa in a bit, they contacted authorities to report her missing. A search for Teresa ensued, but most people already had a creeping suspicion of what had truly happened to Teresa. When Teresa was reported missing, her family felt they knew what had happened to her. See, Teresa's life with Kenny was far from perfect. In the home, there were reports of him abusing her, and he would leave Teresa with bodily injuries frequently. The family brought this information to the police, and it was taken into consideration for the investigation. The authorities began asking around about Kenny to see if he had been acting strange or saying things that may indicate his involvement in the case. While these investigations didn't yield any information on how Kenny was acting following the 21st, there was a lot of people who had some things to say about Kenny. Kenny was well known to the public as a man prone to violent and unpredictable outbursts, and someone you didn't want to cross. Despite these statements, the evidence against Kenny was circumstantial at best. What police needed to do was find Teresa. They felt that was the only way they could shut this case. Searches were conducted in the fields nearby, waterways, people's yards, and many other locations in hopes of finding even a trace of Teresa. But time and time again, the searches came up empty, and eventually the investigation stalled out completely. With no breaks in the case and no credible sightings or reports, the investigation turned back on Kenny. There wasn't any new information on Kenny by this point, but with every other avenue having been explored, he was seen as the only way of advancing this case. In 1992, investigators on the case requested a polygraph from Kenny. Kenny agreed to take the polygraph, and it was set to happen shortly thereafter. Before this polygraph happened, an investigative television series known as The Fifth Estate had requested an interview with Kenny, to which he agreed. Kenny requested that the interview happen before his polygraph test, and with this in mind, an interview date was set. When the interviewer began, they started by asking questions about the case, what Kenny thought happened, where he thought his wife may be, and other basic questions. But this session took a drastic turn when the interviewer dropped a bomb on Kenny. When interviewing Kenny, the Fifth Estate informed him that new information had come out that could conclusively link Kenny to Teresa's disappearance. The whole atmosphere of the interview shifted with this claim. Kenny quickly terminated it, and the Fifth Estate team left. While this seems like a huge break in the case, it was actually far from it. The Fifth Estate, as far as I can tell, fabricated this statement. There was no such evidence against Kenny, and the only new thing coming up was the polygraph. Right after this interview, Kenny took his own life, taking with him anything that he may have known about the case. This result presents a perfect example of how problematic unethical reporting and investigative journalism can be. I don't necessarily believe that Kenny was innocent. I think that there was a lot stacking up against him but this interview may have taken an opportunity for the family to see their loved one again. Of course, polygraphs don't hold up in court, and in the end, they're pretty meaningless. But maybe there was more that the investigation could have gotten from Kenny. The search for Teresa continued. In 2010, her old home was completely dismantled by an investigative team to search every layer for traces of Teresa. And again, this search yielded nothing. Also in 2010, members of Teresa's family unearthed clothing in an area they suspected Teresa may have been. The clothing was given to the police, but the DNA profiling showed that the clothing didn't match Teresa's DNA profile. Teresa's sister suggested that the police may locate Teresa's body on a property in Morel, PEI. Teresa's sister declined to say why she thought the property may be significant, but they have made multiple appeals to have the area searched. As far as I can tell, the property remains unsearched, and Teresa's sister says that if she has to, she will gather a group of people and dig up the area herself. I'm guessing this location must be on private property or something inaccessible where there needs to be strong evidence suggesting that a body is there for anything to be dug up. Teresa's mother passed away, never knowing what happened to her daughter all those years ago. Today, Teresa's sister still hopes that one day they will find her sister's body to bring home. She says that she's no longer interested in convicting anyone in the case, and she just wants to be able to bring her sister home. Those were three disappearances from PEI. By nature, a disappearance leaves behind little to go off of. But I hope that this episode will help illuminate some people who have for one reason or another vanished without a trace and just how complicated it is to ever figure out what truly happened to those who are lost. If you or anyone you know has information on the disappearances of Stephen O'Brien, Stacy McKinnon-Smith, and Teresa Ann Gregory, please contact the Police Department for the Province of PEI or Crime Stoppers. Any information could be important in this case, and maybe what little things you have could be the answer that we've all been looking for. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Shades of Crime. Our theme music is by Shalee Musso. You can listen to this episode and all other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts you can find Shades of Crime on Instagram at podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at shadesofcrime at gmail.com. For more information on this case and other cases covered, as well as information on the podcast, check out our blog at shadesofcrime.ca. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next week.